0: Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 88, with Joseph Yoon of
1: Brooklyn Bugs. And what I try to do is reimagine what this food can look like. It's not just like dangling a bug or eating a bug in its entirety, but really being able to incorporate it into dishes. So I found it very important to actually integrate it into the food, even if it's crickets or grasshoppers or black ants on top of guacamole, it's still being presented as part of a dish, part of a food. And I found that that is really important in presenting this food, especially from the point of view as a chef, not to just go like, here, try this insect because it's sustainable, but really being able to present it, not just for its sustainability, not just because it's nutrient dense, but, Also, because it's delicious and fun.
0: This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. On this week's show, we have Joseph Yoon. He's the executive director of Brooklyn Bugs, as well as the chef-owner of Yummy Eats and Dinner Echo. Joseph views his participation in this global food movement as an extension of his commitment to his community and volunteers his time and resources with both Brooklyn Bugs and Yummy Eats. Brooklyn Bugs is an advocate for edible insects, and their mission is to raise appreciation and awareness for them through delicious, educational, and creative programming. Their work's been featured on Smithsonian Channel, New York Times, NPR, Food & Wine, and Gizmodo, as they strive to introduce edible insects as a sustainable source of protein that can be found in your pantry, eaten as a snack, and beautifully plated by chefs. Joseph first got into edible insects as a collaboration with artist Miru Kim, She's someone he had wanted to work with for a long time, and she was looking to serve insects for people to eat as part of her Phobia Fagia project. Besides being a sustainable protein source, in the right hands, insects are also delicious. We discuss a few of the ways that Joseph likes to use them, and we talk about the parallels between eating insects and Opal. This week we have Earth Day coming up, and we thought that this would be a great tie-in, as Joseph and I both really care about sustainability, and just thought that this would be a natural fit to release this episode this week. So if you've ever wanted to learn about eating insects, this is going to be the podcast episode for you. And thank you to this week's sponsor, Olive and Basket. With more than 30 each oils and vinegars, Olive and Basket is my go-to for specialty food items. They also have seasoning blends, sauces, jams, pasta, honeys, mustards, gift baskets, and so much more. A couple of my personal favorites are the Meyer lemon oil and the Greek seasoning vinegar, but I don't think I've ever had anything I didn't like from their shop. Sharon and Cindy do a great job curating a wide selection of items that are loved by both professional chefs and home cooks. Located in Frederick, Maryland, their shop is at 5231 Buckystown Pike, but you can order all their products online and have them shipped directly to your house. Go to oliveandbasket.com, and the link is in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week.
1: Hey Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm very excited to be here. I look forward
0: to talking to you. We've gone back and forth I guess via like Instagram over the past year or so and now I see you in clubhouse rooms almost every day now.
1: Clubhouse has been incredibly life-changing and it's been really such a positive experience and I, I've really been enjoying connecting with you and and many other people through through the vocal audio medium. I mean it's really been incredible and I guess you and
0: I met actually one of the times i had been eating insects we uh met at a star chef's event at oxomoco in brooklyn which is one of my favorite places and i have to say the grasshopper the what is it the beef tartare with the grasshopper mayo there is one of my favorite things and i think i get it every time i'm there
1: awesome i i can't wait to to go again and be able to eat there it's it's been it's been a while since, uh, since I've been eating indoors, so I, I'm looking forward to the return of that lifestyle again.
0: Me too, for sure. Well, I usually get into culinary background, but I think we should just jump right into this. You're the guy, or at least one of them, who advocates for
1: eating insects. So how and when did that start? My journey to beginning my work with edible insects is quite unique because it didn't come from a culinary standpoint, nor from a standpoint from sustainability either really. And it comes from art. And I'm actually really quite happy about this because I really love supporting art and I think culture is gonna be a really big way in how we're gonna get people to really start accepting edible insects. And so there's an artist that I really loved. Her name is Miru Kim. And I was a big fan of her artwork. And I kept asking her, once we became friends, I I kept pitching her on ideas for us to work on together. And she kept saying no. And I was like, Miru, I hope you don't mind if I keep asking you and pitching you on projects. And she was like, well, as long as you don't mind me saying no, then I don't mind you asking me. And so this went on for, I think, a couple years. And then in 2000, at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, she asked me whether I would participate in her art project, Phobia Phagia, conquering her fear of insects by eating them. And she wanted a chef that would help create the food and produce an event with her around that. And when she asked me, I knew very little about edible insects, but I immediately said yes because I really wanted to work with her. And so after saying yes, I went on to the old WWW and I did a little research and almost immediately I find out that the UN endorses edible insects, the Food and Agricultural Organization wrote a report in 2013 edible insects future prospects for food and feed security and these things really resonated profoundly with me the fact that edible insects are sustainable that it addresses food security and sustainability these are things that are really meaningful and that had that that really led to me being tremendously inspired and motivating me to continue working with edible insects so what did that first project look like that you did with her she wanted to host an event where we could serve edible insects to her guests and upon brainstorming we decided to turn it into a fundraiser for her to to raise some money for her to get some more camera equipment and stuff and so i created a tasting menu of about 10 dishes and we were successfully able to to raise funds for her and. it's just really fascinating how much an event, a singular event with someone that I really respect, uh, can change my life. I mean, working with Edible Insects has irrevocably, completely altered the course of my life, and so for that, I am I will eternally be grateful to Miru for uh, giving the the spark to the catalyst to get involved with insects, not having any clue or idea about how significantly uh, it would really impact my life.
0: Now, at that time, did you have any experience or formal training in cooking?
1: Well, so I started cooking. I've had a long love affair with cooking. And back in the, let's see, back in the early 90s, when I was in high school, I have pictures in my high school album of dishes that I made for my ex-girlfriend and my family. So way before we had smartphones and cameras and everyone was posting pictures up, I'm proud to say I'm one of the OG photo takers in high school. And I just found myself immediately gravitating towards kitchens. When my friends would have parties, I would love to go and help out in the kitchen. When there's a grill cooking, I would offer to like... Hey, if you want to relax, I'm happy to cook on the grill for you. And so I just found a great love and passion for cooking. And it was never my intention to work in food and hospitality. But in 2011, after working in the music industry for about a dozen years, I was feeling a little burnt out, and I wanted to create some spark, some passion, something that I loved, and I decided to host a pop-up event. And this was in 2011, so this was a little before the whole concept and idea of pop-ups really took off like it is now, and I would approach some bars that I I would go to that I enjoyed hanging out in, and I would ask them, I'm like, hey, could I do a pop-up They're like, what's that mean, Joseph? What what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I would bring everything that I need to set up and serve food in your bar. And hopefully this will be a win-win situation where we'll be getting more people into your bar. We'll be serving food. They'll want to drink more. They'll drink more. They'll want to eat more food. And so it was just a really beautiful experience where that led to me finding a lot of champions for my work and I was slowly able to start focusing more of my time on my culinary work, wean off the work from the music industry and I was able to successfully transition where I won some champions that brought me some really large accounts working for corporations and you know, I just really put my head down and, and worked and try to learn as much as possible in the art of catering and how to successfully cater large events with small, tiny pantry spaces that they would give me and in, incorporate kitchens and stuff or in these small rooms without any running water or a stove and how I can execute those events. And so it, 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 it was a big learning curve. But I am so happy that I was able to make that transition. And and so I, I would say I, I've been cooking, you know, working as a cook and as a chef now since uh, 2011. So you did this one-off
0: art event. Then what? Like,
1: how did that turn into Brooklyn Bugs and what you're doing today? So after the event, it was on Cinco de Mayo 2017 with Miru Kim. I continue doing research on companies in North America specifically to really try to find allies in people and companies purveyors who wanted to expand the idea of eating insects in America and so I sent them pictures from my event and I was like hey guys this is a work that I'm doing with edible insects I would love to speak with you about uh, working together, seeing if there's a meaningful way for us to do something together, and thankfully, all the companies I reached out to uh, were like, "We'd love to send you samples, and we'd love to see what you do with our with our insect products." And after that initial phase, which went into like June, May into for the month of May, I was like, "Guys, there has never been." A conference or a festival in New York City around edible insects and they're like no there hasn't and so I was like what if I were to host and produce a conference around edible insects they were like we would be all behind it 110 percent Joseph that would be incredible so I was like okay Joseph let's see I know I want an outdoor component for this for this conference and it's June now, so we'd really have to do it really quickly. Maybe Labor Day weekend. Now, to produce an event of this nature, it would I would ordinarily plan at least one year out, maybe nine months out. So this was a very assertive, accelerated idea to try to host a conference in a matter of like with a three-month turnaround, essentially. And the sponsors were like, Joseph, if you can do it, we will be there. And, you know, it sounds like a really quick turnaround. I'm like, I know, but let's try to get this together. And so with their support and with the support of like a large crew of people of my team, uh, I was able to throw Brooklyn Bugs Festival. I decided I wanted to move away from the idea of a conference of having it be all sit down and educational. And I wanted elements of a party. I wanted people to be able to celebrate and to really enjoy not just the scientific and academic intellectual aspect, but to be able to really embrace the gastronomy of it, be able to have a big outdoor market where vendors can show their products, where kids can learn and play and just really create an atmosphere that's inclusive, and that can create some noise beyond an academic level. So that's why, instead of calling it a conference, I, I decided to make it more of a festival and give it like a Brooklyn vibe. Amazing things happened, Chris. As the comp, as like this conference festival was happening, I was amazed because New York One came and they were the first one to come, Gothamist, time, time out. And then, New York Times called, NPR called, Gizmodo, and just like really meaningful press, like the press that I have a tremendous amount of respect for, started calling me and that had a profound impact. I was like, wow, as a private chef, I don't care what kind of food I was (laughs) making, like the New York Times and NPR were not calling me to, to ask about what kind of food I'm serving for my catering clients. And so it had a really profound sort of impact on me. I was like, wow, I have found something that means a lot to me, that has great meaning to me. And I'm finding a lot of people that are very interested in the work I'm doing. And so that that really helped to catapult and make decisions about the direction of my companies between my private chef and catering company And the direction of where I would go with Brooklyn Bugs. Well, it sounds like you got some great press from the start. What was the
0: reception like from just the average attendee? I mean, we're I'm sure there's all levels of skepticism, excitement, interest. Like, what was the vibe like at this event?
1: It was buzzing. The first Brooklyn Bugs Festival was just buzzing, Chris. It's really fascinating because One of the things that actually works really well in my favor is that people presume that edible insects is going to taste gross. They're like, oh, and as a chef, I stand behind the food that I make and I spend a lot of time understanding the flavor profiles and functionality of the products I work with. I will try to exhaust all the possibilities of how to work with a flavor to to accentuate the nuances, coax the flavors, fi- find the right pairings. And so it really worked in my favor when we would share our food and have these events because people would have this like light bulb aha moment. And I think one of the one of the most frequently used words upon eating a bite of ento cuisine, insect food Do you want to guess what that word is, Chris? Wow. Or delicious. People are like, actually, this tastes really good. And it really started making me realize it's like a lot of people really don't know how to think of insect protein. And they view it in the the lowest common factor of like, here's a dry cricket. Let me try eating it. It's equivalent to eating a dried out boiled piece of chicken breast, let's say, for example, that's unseasoned. Or maybe someone adds a little like shake seasoning on top of it or something. And what I try to do is reimagine what this food can look like. It's not just like dangling a bug or eating a bug in its entirety but really being able to incorporate it into dishes. So I found it very important to actually integrate it into the food. Even if it's crickets or grasshoppers or black ants on top of guacamole, it's still being presented as part of a dish, part of a food. And I found that that is really important in presenting this food, especially from the point of view as a chef, not to just go like, try this insect because it's sustainable, but really being able to present it not just for its sustainability, not just because it's nutrient-dense, but also because it's delicious and fun. Well, I think there's a lot of
0: similarities between that and offal. You know, I'm a big advocate of cooking animal organs. I mean, I feel like you're going to go to the trouble of raising an animal to kill it just to eat the meat. Like, I think it's pretty disrespectful to, like, not eat the whole thing, right? And again, cooking with organs comes off as kind of... Some people think it's a joke. Like, I cook lamb's testicles, which are delicious. And I've done tutorials, and I have videos and how-tos. Like, this is how you actually, you know boil them poach them clean them and I'll you know do like a three breading procedure fry them serve them with romesco sauce and micro herbs and people try them and they say they're delicious or you know doing kidneys i and but i think it's the same thing i think there's the people who are so far removed like they just go to the grocery store and they see this package of meat like on this little you know tampon-type thing with plastic wrap over it, and they think that's where their food comes from. But if, God forbid, they see a pig's head or a chicken foot, they kind of lose their mind. And I I think there's probably some similarities between that
1: and and eating insects. There's a couple parallels there that, that you mentioned, and I'm really glad that you brought that up. And one is that... People don't think about eating, when you think about eating lamb, for example, you don't think about eating an entire big fluffy woolly lamb. You think about eating a, a, a plated presented dish. And people are still thinking of insects as the whole insect. And because they're so small, you think about eating them just in its entirety instead of being able to manipulate them and plate them into dishes. And two, a point that I, your lamb balls sound delicious Don't mute out the lamb because then it'll be really weird, okay? I'm going to trust your editing on this. But your lamb balls sound delicious. And imagine if someone didn't know how to eat lamb balls and they're just like, okay, let me just fry this in a pan. But they didn't know how to prepare it. And they're like, ah, this this doesn't taste good. This isn't for me. But then they learn the technique of how to prepare it properly, right? And so I also think that a lot of times people are essentially eating insects in America in a manner that's similar to just eating like raw lamb balls. They don't take the time to learn how to prepare, how to really use gastronomical art, to use culinary techniques to learn how to properly prepare insects to make them delicious. And so I, that, that's a really great point that you bring up. And, and I think that there is a great... Um, a narrative shared between offal meats and with edible insects.
0: So I want to talk to you a little bit about your programming. Like what are, what some of your programming in the past look like? And, you know, what are you doing more recently?
1: Thank you for asking, Chris. We've been very fortunate to receive numerous grants with universities and museums across America to share our, share our work around edible insects. And what's really fascinating about it is that a lot of professors I spoke with, they would say, Joseph, we love your work, but we don't have any funding to to get you over here. And I think they thought that that was the end of the conversation. But I said, guys, how about if we just brainstorm a little bit, talk about what kind of programming we could present, and then you could talk to your the head of your department or the director, chair, and see what they say. And amazingly, we were able to successfully create programming where the we got accepted, they wrote grants, the deans would say, let's give this guy money. And what I was really just so almost flabbergasted about is that we would go to some of these university programs. And so Some of the programs that we did would obviously be with uh, giving presentations. And what I really loved is that the interdisciplinary nature of the work that I'm doing, it's not just for environmentalists. It's not just for foodies or the food and hospitality program, but we were also in anthropology. We were in so many different academic disciplines. That it would it would really be amazing. We would be invited to the business courses. And so the presentations were one aspect of it. Then we would have the workshops where we would actually have hands-on workshops to work with the students in showing the functionality of insect protein. What can we do with it? We would also have a a conference style where the, the students would be able to share their work and research on insect protein, and I would also be able to share the work that I've been doing. We would always have, what would usually be the most exciting element, is an event where people can actually taste the food. And at Montana State University, they just had their 33rd annual Bug Buffet, and it's just so amazing that Dr. Florence Stunkel is a pioneer in this and so at their at at the two events that i went to two previous years we fed over a thousand people i mean amazing and working with their culinary team their hospitality team we were able to make 12 different tasting dishes for people to come and sample and so that is really incredible at purdue we were able to uh have three thousand people over the course of two days also eating a sampling of over a dozen dishes. And what's really important with this is that it would be easy to make like one or two dishes, right? And they're like, oh, what what dish do you want to make, Joseph? And I'm like, you know, it would behoove me not to try to make a lot of dishes to show the broad applications and also so that no one can hide and say, oh, I don't want to see bugs. Oh, it's okay. We have these Gougeres, Cricket Gougeres where you don't have to see it. Oh, I want to see the bug. Okay, well, great. We have all these applications. I only eat sweet stuff. Okay, great. We have a couple of desserts for you. I eat gluten-free. Oh, we have these What You know, I try to exhaust all the possibilities so that there is something for everyone. And the incredible thing about this is that most people that come to these events, they work their way up through each of the dishes, and before they realize it, even though they never ever would have thought of eating a wasp or a scorpion, they work their way up to that dish, and they have this pride, this like sense of like, I can't believe I just ate through all of this whole tasting menu. And like being able to witness that kind of transformation, this pride and accomplishment of going back to Miru's art project, like of conquering their fear, to have that kind of relationship with my diner. I mean, what an incredibly rewarding experience to see that kind of change in people. And so we would have a lot of this programming at universities and at museums and at museums, there would just be, you never know who's going to love your food, right? Sometimes I would see some uh, older people coming through and they'd be like, I've been waiting to see you, Joseph. I heard you were going to be here and bugs are real sustainable, aren't they? And they would just start munching through the entire tasting menu. And other times, like, you know, it's like you never know who this is going to resonate with. And so I've just felt very fortunate to be able to share this work with such a large audience and just really be able to see the reaction of people firsthand. So since COVID, I've been working really hard in on writing my first book. Um, I've been really excited to write a lot of content and Put myself through a challenge. I've been an omnivore for my entire life, and I used to love eating meat. And my friends would be like, "Joseph, you cannot eat that much meat every day." And I'm like, "Yes, I can." <laughs> and as I got a little older, I was like, "Okay, I, I do need to cut down on my meat intake." Um, it's not the healthiest for me to be eating so much meat, but then once I started working with Brooklyn Bugs and I learned that the greatest impact that we can have in reducing our greenhouse gas emissions is by reducing our intake of specifically red meat, but our meat intake. Wow. Mind blowing to think that that can have the greatest reduction on our uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So during COVID, like right around this time, one year ago, since I was in social isolation, or at this time a year ago, I was in quarantine, uh, I was like, okay, let me see if I can actually sustain myself on predominantly an enterian diet, vegetarian diet bolstered by insect protein. And it was fraught with challenges. It's like, I used to love eating meat. How do I substitute my late night cravings or my cravings during dinner time by just eating insect protein? And so I would meticulously write and share, create recipes and just think about how I can satiate my, my needs with this sort of diet. And so it was really fascinating to try to understand and the changes that my body would go through, the changes that I would go through mentally in overcoming some of these ideas. And just, um, it, it was a really fascinating process to, to... I didn't completely eliminate it, um, but, I, but I did largely eliminate it. And there were occasions where I would um, get together with my family on a few occasions where, where I would eat meat again. But it was a really fascinating evolution for me to, to stop eating meat and document everything in a book that I'm continuing to write right now.
0: Well, I'm sure this is relatively inexpensive if you just go out in your backyard and grab some stuff and start eating it. But realistically, how expensive is this stuff right now? I mean, if you're buying farmed insects, what's the price like? And, and how do you procure these? Like, If someone hears this and wants to start, uh, where's the best place to get this stuff?
1: Well, I rely on a a handful of vendors that have done just an incredible job of responsibly sourcing all the products for me. And so my main sponsor, Entosense, they really do such an incredible job of sourcing all the products and handling it at an FDA approved facility. And they, they, they find for me all sorts of products around around the world and when they do get products that are indigenous to other parts of the world they make sure that they find small farmers and try to get things where they support the local economy and while it's not necessarily the most um like i I like to get by as local as possible but because of the need to research this and really expand our understanding I do like to, to work with these new products so that we have a better idea of how to utilize it. Um, I have two primarily two primarily two cricket farms that I work with: Entomo Farms and Aspire Food Group Exo Protein. They have these incredible farms that rear crickets, and so they they provide uh, the majority of the cricket products for me. Uh, there's another company called Mercy Mercado. They get their grasshoppers from uh, from Mexico where they have these uh, fields where there they, there are laws with how you can capture grasshoppers and seasons where you can do it. So I'd like to know that I'm working with companies that put a premium on not only the quality of the product, but in the responsibility of how they're getting their products. And there's another company out in Israel that's farming uh, a different type of grasshopper, locusts. And so so I, I called Hargol Food Tech. And I'm just so grateful to work with companies that are extremely supportive of my mission and the programming that I do. And I'm so grateful that they donate their products when I do these large scale events. I mean, you can imagine how much I need to feed thousands of people and they're just incredibly supportive. So all of their products are available online. And so what I like to do on, in my social media posts, I like to share the ingredients that are largely available online so that people can get them themselves and try it. And sometimes I use things that that are not as readily available, but as an ambassador, as an advocate, as a chef for edible insects, I want to make things that are accessible to people where people will go like, oh wow, that mac- that cricket mac and cheese looks really good. I want to try making it. Let me actually buy the ingredients and try to make it at home for myself instead of like, oh, he's just using things that I can't even get. So it's just a far off future idea. I do try to make it very accessible for people. With regards to the pricing, It is still relatively expensive compared to what I think we as an industry would like to see. And it's the question of the demand that will help bring the prices down. But at the end of the day, two tablespoons of cricket powder have 13 grams of protein. So four tablespoons will give you a meal's worth of protein, essentially. And so when you're looking at a pound of cricket powder, you have to calculate and calibrate things differently based on the protein intake. And so you're not just looking at a pound, uh, a pound of cricket powder, that might, might cost $20 and go like, oh my gosh, it's so expensive, but rather, wow, I can get so many servings of protein for so many meals out of this bag of, of cricket powder. So you're
0: not replacing an eight ounce uh, strip steak with eight ounces of dried crickets on a plate, then?
1: Correct. Well, it depends on the cricket powder is 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 denser because it's it's ground up. Um, but crickets, in general, there are varying studies on this, but in general, they have anywhere from one and a half to even up to two times the protein by weight compared to chicken and pork, and with beef, they, they're like you know, one, 1.25, maybe one and a half times more in protein. So so you're looking at either an equivalent or a greater amount of protein by weight compared to a lot of the the uh, livestock uh, sort of animals that we're eating.
0: So are crickets and grasshoppers the gateway into this, you think?
1: Well, there's a movie even called The Gateway Bug, uh, all about the cricket being the, uh, the entry-level bug. And There's so much research done on edible insects specifically with crickets in America, both in peer reviewed science papers and journals that do studies on it with the amount of products available, cricket chips, cricket energy bars, but whether it is truly the will be the greatest remains to be seen because mealworms take up less space and can be grown on uh, in your own home quite readily. And so we'll still have to wait and see which one really comes up to to be the most effective product that will be made available.
0: So I think the first time I had an insect was Jose Andreas's Oyamel in DC. He does a grasshopper taco. And I probably had that about 12 years ago. And then, you know, the grasshoppers with the beef tartare at Oxamoco. So those are both Mexican restaurants do you see certain cultures and cuisines? Is is Mexican cuisine more open to this? Or are there other uh, countries and cuisines that maybe lean more heavily on this? What are you seeing on that end?
1: Well, Chris, it's really fascinating that there are over 2 billion people that eat edible insects around the world right now. And that over 80% of the world's nations already incorporates edible insects as a staple into their diet, not as a food of desperation and of great need, like there's nothing else to eat. So we have to resort to this. Some of these countries even include them as a delicacy, like, wow, I can't wait to eat this. And so you will see examples of countries all around the world that are eating them. And the exclusion is in North America, outside of Mexico, like USA, and a lot of the European countries. And unfortunately, because it is seen as kind of a status symbol, you think about going to like a fancy party or celebrating a big meal. A lot of times people think about eating like meat, a big dish. And so they think that eating insects is relegated to, oh, I'll eat it at the end of the world oh, hey, we're just going through a pandemic. Maybe now's a great time to have this conversation, actually. Or, oh, I'll eat it only if I'm, like, broke. And, you know, those are the wrong narratives, and we're trying to help people to cross that bridge, and it's really a bridge of perception, of changing your perception from insects being something that carries disease, something that ruins crops, and something that's disgusting that you want to kill that's crawling around your house edible insects, something that's sustainably farmed or harvested specifically for human consumption at an FDA-approved facility that's nutrient-dense and that can also provide a great livelihood for a lot of people. And if you think about a lot of the protein that we're eating now, like the, the cattle and the beef that we're eating now and you think about all the funding that they receive from the USDA to evolve it, to improve upon how it's reared, to improve on its flavor, we actively want to try to find and create the policies and the legislation that will support for insect agriculture for the USDA to start funding more research into insect agriculture, which will be fundamental, I think, to really being able to grow this and create incentives for people to have insect farms. Um, so, so I hope I, I, I went a little bit around of where people are eating the insects, but I do hope to one day travel to a lot of these countries and, and try eating them and learning from how people are doing it in a lot of indigenous areas. But uh, a little factoid for Mexico, since you mentioned it, in Oaxaca they eat over 600 types of edible insects there so you know that they're that they have a great wealth of knowledge of of how to eat it and a great history of eating them there as well.
0: What's well, just interesting I guess maybe I was thinking in the context of like American and dining because you know I can't say I've ever been to a Thai restaurant or a French restaurant or a Ethiopian restaurant and had insects but just knowing that I've only had them at two restaurants and they were both Mexican, kind of that was the connection I was making. Uh, But now you're seeing, you know, in formal dining, like Rene Redzepi got a lot of press for serving his aunts at Noma. And I know that that's something uh, that other chefs are trying to bring into fine dining. But I just don't know if there's any other cuisines specifically here, I guess, in the US where they're kind of doing that as well.
1: The challenge lies in perception again and a lot of the chefs that I speak to they're concerned that if they start serving insects that they might lose some of their clientele and one of the things that I've experienced is that it's a skyrocket of interest from chefs where they're like oh my god I love the idea of edible insects it's sustainable there are over 2000 types of edible insects all the different flavor profiles and textures and then once they get it and then try it, there's this waning interest that they have, and then a lot of times I feel like it gets relegated to like the butt end of a joke, like, "Oh, you're working with insects. Oh, there's look, there's a bug on the on the ground, Joseph, in my salad." And it's like, you know what? You're you're completely missing the point, guys, because we're really trying to validate this as a new form of smart protein something that we know that we can that we can rear and provide a sustainable form of protein we need to address how we're going to have these ag- like responsible cycles in agriculture where we're not going to deplete all our resources and i'm not saying that edible insects is like the solution but it is among the solutions to help us find ways to produce enough protein to meet the growing demand. And so I think that because of the idea of edible insects being so extreme, people think in extreme terms, like you want us to give give up eating meat? I'm like, no, 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 I never said that. I really just want to encourage you that even if you were to adopt and utilize insect protein, in one meal, once a week, even that would have an impact on our environment. Similar to the whole idea and concept behind Meatless Monday, right? Even that would have an impact on our environment. So that's really what I'm trying to do and I'm really trying to rally a bunch of chefs to work with me. And I'm getting ready to launch a new program called Brooklyn Bugs X Experience, where I'm gonna be sharing a package full of insects to share with chefs and influence makers and work with them in creating some dishes that they can then share to their audience because we really desperately need help. This isn't gonna be driven just by chefs or just by the idea of sustainability because if this were truly chef driven, Rene Redzepi sets the tone of fine dining across the world and you didn't. We didn't see this domino effect where all these other shots were like, "Oh my God, Renee's doing it, and Jose Andres is doing it." Let's also, you know, so it's going to really take a lot of layers. And there's that whole idea of seven points of exposure to accept something new. And so that's why we work culturally to work with artists and musicians to introduce these ideas through their work as well. Why we work in areas of science and academia, while we work with influence makers and foodies. It's like a very inclusive space where we want everybody to get involved and and demonstrate that yes, there is room for literally everybody to get involved and help us to normalize insect protein in America and the world well, I'd love to do whatever
0: I can. It's it's hard. You know, it's like the whole eat local thing, uh, eat pasture-raised animals, eat less meat, eat vegetarian. I still feel like that's a challenge, and that's been going on for decades. You know, I have enough trouble getting my in-laws, like, they just won't eat tofu when I serve it at home. What's going to happen the first time I try and put insects on a plate? Um, but, you know, I I do think, hopefully we will be able to make some strides there. I'm really interested in that because sustainability is, um, you know, something I'm passionate about and I love what you're doing. I can't wait to see this continue to grow.
1: Thank you, Chris. And you know what? You are helping. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my work and asking the questions, giving us the space. Um, If you're interested in participating in Brooklyn Bugs X, I would love to to talk with you more further about that and get you involved and send you a package. And, and I'd love to see what, what you would do with edible insects as well. Well, that would be
0: cool. I feel like I already try and push the envelope with my regular, quote unquote, food. Um, So yeah, I'm always looking to try new things. I don't want to be the guy who makes chicken parmesan and the same stuff that everyone's making anyway. And I don't know why I throw chicken parm out there as a thing. But just, you know, like, I feel like if you can go down the street to like a mom and pop restaurant or an Olive Garden, that's not what I'm interested in making.
1: Yeah. and, And you know, the idea of innovation and creativity has to hit with home with so many chefs. I mean, chefs are always wanting to create new dishes and be creative with seasonal ingredients. You hear about a new vegetable or produce. You're like, wow, what can I do with this? Let me taste this. How does it react when I bake it or fry it or boil it or steam it? And so I just really want to be someone that can be a resource for chefs to go like, I heard that Joseph at Brooklyn Bugs is a resource. And I love to get involved and learn about how I can incorporate insect protein. And so it's going to be really fascinating. One of the great challenges that I found when trying to switch to an ENTO diet is just how do I satiate all the cravings and the food that I'm used to eating. And it takes a little time. If you think about kids when they're given a plate of you know, some some chickens, and peas and carrots or what have you. And they're like, oh, I don't want to eat the veggies. But they're told, well, son, daughter, you have to eat this because it'll make you healthy and it's good for you. And you think about the evolution where once their kind of palates are trained and as they get older, a lot of them will grow to love vegetables in a relatively short period of time. But it took a, a, a bit of training, their palate, and for them to be told that it's good for them. And so I think that people have to take a similar approach to insects where they might eat something that might not be the most pleasant for them. They might not even like it. But think about that time you went to a diner and ate your favorite burger and it didn't taste good. Do you write off eating burgers for the rest of your life? Or do you go, oh, okay, that was poorly prepared, but I know that this tastes good. That's a point that I'm really trying to bring home with a lot of chefs and people diners is that you know you might have had an experience with crickets where you might not have liked it but what if you tried it being prepared by someone who dedicates their life to cooking and making intact protein taste good which leads to another thing is that the availability is the, one of the biggest challenges because if we have something that tastes good that's in a prepackaged good available at grocery stores where they can go home and put it in their oven or on their stove or in their microwave, however they want to heat up their food. I'm not going to judge how people heat up their food, right? And they're able to eat something that tastes delicious. That's ready to eat. That is, I think going to be one of the true big dominoes that starts this effect where people will be like, Oh, you know what? I just had an incredible bugger. Get it? A bugger, an insect burger. Dad jokes. Yeah, you're going to have to excuse that one. But imagine if they have this. And, you know, I feel like a lot of the plant based burgers are doing a lot of the work for us right now in opening the narrative and the path to get people to start thinking about the food that they eat, the responsibility that they have in what they eat and where it comes from. And so I feel like once we're able to start developing this prepackaged goods ready for sale at grocery stores, that is where we're going to see a really big level of adoption. And that's really where I'm trying to go in finding the the, the, really the, the food manufacturers and companies that want to invest in this space with us.
0: Well, I bought some exoprotein protein bars and I shared them with my kids. And, you know, for me, it was really important to let them know what was in them. I hate the idea of, you know, there's like the sneaky chef cookbook and like tricking your kids into eating food. And I don't think that that helps. You know, when we go to a taqueria and we have lengua tacos, I let them know up front that it's tongue. You know, I don't want it to be like, it's beef. Like, I just think we do so much of a disservice, especially if you have kids, that we're always trying to like trick them into eating something different instead of normalizing it at an early age. So I never want to kind of say, oh, this is something else. I never did that with cooks either. A lot of times people say, well, like, just give it to me, but don't tell me what's in it. Well, that that doesn't help bring it into the mainstream. So yeah, I, I would love to get some more of this stuff in front of the kids and maybe, you know, do some more cooking with cricket flour and, and kind of see how they take it. Because I think their generations for sure will be very much more accepting to this. It's I think it's harder to change an older person, right?
1: Yeah, I agree completely with what you're saying right now, and I love that you tried uh, giving the XO uh, bars to your kids. I love them. I think they taste delicious. They do a really wonderful. They they have great chefs and R and D teams there that that do a wonderful job of making them. And, you know, one thing that I I like to clarify is that I I stopped using the term cricket flour because it's a little bit of a misnomer. And I like to use the word powder because the flour is used because of the consistency that it is, but you can't really replace flour and the gluten that it has with cricket powder. And so just as like a vernacular, it's something that that I like to uh, try to try to fix, which I thought was a small mistake in, in calling it flour in the first place.
0: Yeah, that seems to be the term that sticks out in my mind is everyone talks about cricket flour.
1: Yeah, so I, I've been trying to change that and, and a lot of companies also uh, in starting to use the term cricket powder because people will go like, oh, I tried using cricket flour and it didn't work. It totally made a mess out of my cake or cupcake. It didn't rise. And so so I try to, it. it you know, we're all learning in this space, right? It's still relatively new. And, you know, I love what you were saying about not trying to sneak things in. And for me, it would, I place such a paramount importance in the education, in really helping people understand like what they're eating and the importance of what they're eating. And a lot of people are like, oh, why don't you just hide it, Joseph, at those events? I'm like, because it just goes completely against my mission of education and outreach. And so I'm glad that you also kind of share that, share that viewpoint and I think that it's also important to note that because of the allergens in the chitin, which are shared by a lot of shellfish, it's important to just make sure that people don't have shellfish allergies. And while people may be allergic to lobster and not crab, the similar occurs where I know someone that's uh, allergic to mealworms, and that's the only insect he's allergic to, and another one that's only allergic to crickets and no other insect. So it's not always the same, but just as a with an abundance of precaution, we usually put a shellfish allergy warning on edible insects. Just just for those viewers that might decide to try it, that that is one of the allergens we like to be cautious of.
0: Well, that's interesting. I didn't know anything about that. And I know you wouldn't serve anything that wasn't safe to eat. But what happens? Like, how is it that you can eat a hornet or a scorpion or something that usually has a toxin? I'm sure there's something that happens in the processing
1: process, but no concerns at all right correct when 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 it's either cooked or cured or processed, the venom is denatured so so that that's that's not an issue the you know the reason why we have um some estimates all the way up to like over five million insects in the world and why there's only two thousand and I almost say only two thousand kind of facetiously i mean it's kind of funny to think there's only two thousand but it's because we don't know we still have to do more research, but for some of the insects that might eat a toxin like nightshade as a defense mechanism that might also be harmful to us, there are insects that, that could be that could cause more than an upset stomach and, and actually be very harmful for us. So, so that, that's why I, I just trust my vendors and the scholars that tell me which ones are edible and, and I work off of that list.
0: Well, what are some of your favorite resources? Like if people wanted to continue learning, what are websites, books, TV shows,
1: movies? What are some of your favorite things? That is a huge catapult of a question because there's really so much information out there. And I feel like when people decide to go into the wormhole, their mind is blown. There are so many cookbooks out there already that work with edible insects. The one of the greatest resources I found is the uh, FAO report that I referenced earlier: "Edible Insects: Future Prospects for Food and Feed Security." Uh, the night that, the day that it came out, it was downloaded in two thousand thirteen over a million times. So it got a ton of traction, and since then, I think it's like up to like seven million downloads right now. It, has, it, has a, it really has a wealth of information in there. For those that want a, a great starter book as well as Eat Bug Cookbook by my good friend, David George Gordon. You have On Eating Insects. That was written by the Nordic Food Lab, Rene Redzepi's uh, sort of R&D department, the sister company. They wrote an incredible in-depth book at the highest level for most home cooks That's going to be more of a coffee table book and something that you look at the pictures and go, wow. Uh, For those that are really interested in the culinary arts, that is a wonderful resource. There's also the insect cookbook written by Dr. Arnold Van House, the main author of the FAO report. Um, There's also a ton of really incredible videos. The Smithsonian Channel has a video series on cooking with edible insects. That features me and a couple of them and David George Gordon and a couple other cooks. Um, there's really a wealth of information. I also personally, not to inject myself and plug myself into it, but I post hundreds of dishes that feature insect protein on Brooklyn Bugs every year. I mean, I'm just cooking with insect protein and every day day I feel like I'm learning more as I work with new ingredients and maybe make a new dish. It's like, oh, I have this dish. Why don't I try incorporating insect protein into it? So um, yeah, I think there, there's a lot more information out there than even I realize. And I love when friends send me a, a link that that features an article about insect protein or something. It really is. Uh, there's really a lot of information that that's out there already.
0: Well, I know I just sent you a link. I saw the article about eating cicadas the other day, and I wanted to make sure you had seen that.
1: Yeah, thank you. I love, you know, some articles people send, like I get like five people sending it to me. I never get tired of that. I'm like, thank you for thinking of me and sharing this because it's, it's hard to keep up sometimes. And I just spoke with um, a professor at the university of Maryland because the cicada is going to be huge there and hopefully we'll be able to meet up. Uh, I think we'll both have our COVID tests taken, I mean, our COVID vaccine's done by the time the brood comes, but there's just so much out there. The world is just so full of wonder. And it's just like the only limitations I feel with edible insects is really in our own imagination. Well, I'm sure
0: you could talk for hours, but is there anything else you want to add before we finish up today?
1: You know, one of the last things I'd like to leave with your audience and your listeners is just to try to keep an open mind try to give it a chance keep researching exploring the idea of edible insects it is so fun and i can guarantee you that if you put a little effort into making it into your favorite dish i'm gonna say you're gonna love it you will be shocked at just how delicious and accessible, and easy it is to incorporate the sustainable, nutrient-dense, and delicious form of protein. It is a never-ending, just something that will keep on giving. And so I'm just so grateful to be here with you, Chris. Thank you so much for asking me and for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. And uh, I'm just so thrilled to have been able to to be given this opportunity. Thank you so much, Chris. My
0: pleasure. I I love talking to you. And this is something I know virtually nothing about. So I love having guests on when I can learn. And, you know, let's catch up. And I, I would definitely do this again. And we can do a round two
1: and talk even more. Well, I love the idea of getting you in on the Brooklyn Bugs X experience. And hopefully, maybe after we do that and see what you cook up, uh, maybe we could do a little follow-up. I, I would really love that a lot.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And as a reminder to all of our listeners, we recently launched a Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Chefs Restaurants. If you enjoyed this episode and want to continue listening to the show, I'd really love your support. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.